Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by my co-host, Chris Wachter, as every other week, we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter, and my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Back for another episode of the Red Tree Pod. Chris, it's good to see you, my friend. How is it going in your world? Good to see you, Davis. Pretty good. Yeah, things are... Things are as well with my soul, I would say, today. Yeah. yeah. How about what? you? How you been? Uh, mostly good. Since the last time I saw you, I had a little run-in with uh, food poisoning, um, which that's was no fun as close to death as anyone. I have felt in a long time. Yeah, it was really not fun. In fact, it was uh, it was an old college friend's wedding down in Texas, so we did all this mm. prep work on the front end to get down there, got childcare, all these things. And then we're there for such a short time. And the first night I got food poisoning from something I think I ate at the rehearsal dinner and was down for the count, missed the wedding, flew back early the next day and was just, it was a whirlwind of, Sorry, man. of suck. Sounds, that's the worst. <laughs> we, we are, we are fragile creatures. That's my we, big takeaway in this. I'm just like, man, all of this work, all these choices, all these decisions to go down there. And I have one piece of steak Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and everything comes crashing down. So, right. Have definitely been better. Glad to be back on two feet and uh, talking Good. about theology with you today. Can't wait. Yeah, it seems like you're doing better than me. Uh, well, I didn't have food poisoning, so that's a good way to start the day, I'd I guess. So. And I uh, just read the chat GPT, the AI chatbot thing I know that you know a lot about as well. And uh, maybe not everyone does. I don't know. But it's uh, an AI chatbot that's made the news since last November, I think, right? Um, just doing... Uh, doing a lot for people and writing and um, writing things and and answering questions in a very termi- Terminator kind of Skynet kind of way or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Written all your sermons and blog posts now. I yeah, think. oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, it's 100%. easy now. It takes five minutes. Yeah. It's pretty pretty great. But four hour work week. Thank you, Tim Ferriss. Yeah, yeah. getting it done. <laughs> well, they came out with an update today, and I went on just to try it out, and it said at capacity. Oh, I thought that was funny. <laughs> things changing the world, but it also crashed the website. So a little bit of humility for the for the, uh, for the whole thing, but, um, on their side of things, but, um, but I don't know much about it because I had to try it out maybe at some point. You have thoughts on this whole robot writing, uh, answering overall optimistic all your I mean, latest I, questions. Yeah. Kind of I think it's an exciting development. I was listening to some person talk about it and they, they were basically saying like, we're not really sure how much this is going to change the world. I mean, everybody does jump to Terminator and even yeah. some New York times articles were saying like, this thing wants to be alive. And if you just zoom out for a second, you just think, it's giving us those answers because that's all we've talked about with AI, right? Like it's just scouring the internet and reading about the Terminator <laughs> and every other prediction of what AI would be and just saying that back to us. So I, I don't think that uh, it, it is that. Maybe I'll eat my words mm. in 10 years time when Arnold Schwarzenegger comes back as yeah. the Terminator. <laughs> uh, but no, overall, I think there is a there's a technology development here that maybe is unforeseen since something that dates as far back as like the creation of the alphabet. Like, like what that did for our ability to communicate with one another. Um, I think we have something like this on yeah. our hands. Yeah. 
Yeah, I got to say too, it's just as someone who writes and, and speaks for a living, like, you know, it's uh, tempting to use or at least to consult or wonder like, you know, I think we've read articles where people have tried to type in a, hey, write a sermon for me. And it actually right. came out not that bad yeah. <laughs> and uh, a little legalistic at the end, which is kind of funny. The first sermon I saw, uh, yes. it, it started off really good, but then it just ended with law. You know? <laughs> so apparently even uh, even chatbots are, are legalistic, um, but it has kind of drawn out a bit of... Uh, uh, pride in, in my own heart, I think, you know, just kind yeah. of like thoughts of, well, I can do this better or I don't need that or that, that kind of thing. So, uh, with really no commentary about the thing, I feel like I know so little about it and where it's going. None of us know where it's going, but I think for me, just kind of seeing that, oh, it's drawn out a little bit of, a little bit of pride and self, self, uh, trust maybe, you know, in my own heart. And I think that's been a good thing to kind of check a little bit too yeah. and realize that truth comes from outside of us and all helps and guidance and, and, uh, and whatnot are, are, it's more from outside of us than we think, you yeah. know, I think it's kind of the, uh, reminds me of Malcolm Gladwell's outliers book. If you've ever heard of that or read that kind of a similar thing he's noticing or d- does in that book. But, um, but interesting, we'll see, we shall see if they can do our own podcast for us, you know, maybe <laughs> <laughs> in, yes. in the future with our voices. This podcast sponsored by chat GPT, GPT. 4.0 at capacity. <laughs> right. Oh, that's funny. I I have been surprised that, you know, like you said, there has been definitely a, a law leaning in so many of the sermons and stuff that have come out of it. But at mm. times I am impressed with the gospel clarity that it sometimes has it when does. you ask it a question. Right, so right. I'm not sure where it's pulling from, but uh, it's definitely a mixed bag. Right. So, but that brings us to today's topics at hand. Again, sponsored by ChatGPT. Everything we're about to say <laughs> is all from an AI. I'm not even real. This is a yeah, robot. Nor am I. Yeah. We are going to be looking at 2 Samuel 18, Psalm 24, uh, close to the end of 1 Thessalonians. It's going to be 5, 12 through 22. Leaving a little meat on the bone. We'll finish that uh, book next week. And then today's What About topic is kind of a, a part two of last week's. We looked at uh, the topic of what does it mean to be antinomian and some of the charges that often come up in the face of being a grace-centered theologian or somebody who wants to read the Bible with, with grace in mind. Uh, this is kind of a part two in that, well, well, how then do you talk about New Testament instruction and obedience? So we'll get to that at the end, but let's begin with 2 Samuel 18. So this is a this is an interaction um, in the life of David that is often very overlooked. It's a very detailed account of the death of one of his sons. Now, this is Absalom, uh, and Absalom has been pursuing David, trying to take over his kingdom. There is a kind of messy backstory as to how Absalom kind of rose to fame after killing his own brother, kind of in righteous indignation for his brother was a, a quite, quite a slime ball. Uh, but then he just continues to try and ascend the throne. And begins to pursue David. David's driven back into the wilderness like he was when Saul was pursuing him. And then 2 Samuel 18 recounts the story of David's men coming after Absalom after David has said, uh, deal gently with him. In other words, don't take his life, just capture him. And thousands of Absalom's men fall actually in the forest. There's an interesting detail there that more of the men died by the forest. I think that's the only time in the Old Testament story where you have a seemingly inanimate mm. object fighting for God's yeah. design. Or could have been the Ents uh, <laughs> as well. So <laughs> yes. It's not in my translation, but it might be in <laughs> yours. Um, and then they ultimately catch Absalom or Absalom catches himself. Uh, he found, finds himself strung up in a tree. I'll let, I'll let you say more about that, Chris. Mm. And then his, uh, his men take him out um, against David's command to protect his life. So, 
Let's just, for starters, where what, what is going on in this passage, Chris? Help us out. Well, it's a weird death, I think. And, you know, like you and I like to say a lot, when there's weirdness in the Bible, a lot of times you just find Jesus there. It's almost mm-hmm. kind of a, a flashing neon sign saying, look deeper and scratch the surface and ask the question, where is Jesus here? And specifically kind of a la Luke 24, when Jesus is walking those two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus through the Old Testament, it says he, he showed where he was in the Old Testament, but it also says, Specifically, he showed where his sufferings were and subsequent glory. So there's kind of a there's a, a bullseye of sorts that goes past just the the, the God man himself into like the main reason, the, the main MO uh, for why he came. And that was his death. And so kind of with that in mind, I think you, this is a great passage to um, kind of low hanging fruit. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, presume that it's always easy to see this, but uh, some low hanging fruit with how Absalom died with uh, riding on a mule uh, that, you know, Joab, I think you mentioned David's uh, kind of uh, commander, uh, his, his uh, number two essentially went out to exact justice and kill Absalom. But the way it happens sounds very much like the passion of, of Jesus Christ uh, with Absalom riding on a mule and his his head gets stuck in a in a, a low-hanging oak tree branch or something like that and the mule keeps going and he's just suspended uh, it says in in midair some translations say between heaven and earth so he's literally kind of caught and hanging in a tree and then Joab's like I'm gonna go just finish the job and so he runs him through with a javelin and says goes right into his his side or his heart and then he's buried in a big pit. So it's just this, uh, it's a pretty short narrative actually, but the way the way it transpires is very reminiscent of the gospel accounts of Jesus also riding a mule into the city, which uh, follows shortly with his crucifixion, how he's suspended between heaven and earth, which I love, love that imagery of how Christ is uh, thrust into the air on a tree as well, uh, which implies he's a bridge. He's put in between our creator in the sky and those of us who have been cast down uh, onto, onto, the, onto the ground, us sinners who are so far away from him. So you have that kind of cool imagery as well. Of course, being the king's son, this is actually a son of David. So there's typology there as well that, um, that one, of, one of David's sons would come one day to die in this manner. Um, and I think like just, we've talked, I think on this podcast before about this too, but Jesus here is, is uh, taking on the dark passages because mm-hmm. Absalom is a really bad dude. And so so to compare him to Jesus is not to say they're one-to-one on a moral level, because Jesus, of course, is not all of those things. He's the spotless lamb. But it is to say that Jesus kind of becomes like this son of David. He, he becomes evil, even though he's not. He becomes sin on the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, even though he knew no sin, he became sin on the cross that we might have that exchange or that, that generous gift from him. We might take on his purity uh, and, and his righteousness. And so that's, I think, how you you connect those dots. There's much more to say, but starting with the similarities and seeing that this is this is definitely a Jesusy death. This is definitely a passion, a prefigurement of the passion narrative. Uh, but getting to that place of um, of how uh, how and what exactly he took on to us is very important to get to because mm-hmm. it didn't just happen. It, it's good news, I think, that it happened. It, it's it's uh, it's for our benefit. It's to reverse all the stuff you were talking about, the mess going on in Jerusalem at that time and surrounding areas and in the kingdom. Like that, something a death had to occur uh, to to reverse this and this and not just any death, but this kind of death, a royal death, uh, a death that goes from mule to tree to tomb. 
uh, basically, which is, of course, what our Savior praise be his name, uh, did, did for us. That's right. Yeah. And there's, there's a couple more threads too, to pull, even in the midst of these, these details surrounding Absalom's death. And, and one of them actually comes, I was just reading some commentaries on this just to see like, this is a pretty skippable passage. You know, it's, it's one of these strange detailed accounts of something. Uh, I find that commentaries are quick to just be like, Oh yeah, there's just some, some guy died and it was like kind of questionable as to why and why we got all these details, but here's the big idea. Right. Um, but it is again, slowing down around these details and going, okay, how does the cross clarify? What is Jesus ultimately saying to us as the capital A author of this passage? And, uh, I want to push back on one of the things I read in a commentary, which had to do with this. I I, I first liked how he was pointing out the dialogue that's kind of taking place between justice and mercy. And that being David has this just overwhelming sense of mercy towards his son. He's my son. I don't care, really care what he's done. Protect him. Deal gently with him is what one translation even says. And Joab, kind of his right-hand man, has just a very black and white, zero and one approach to justice. And this guy needs to die. He does deserve to die. And Joab's right. The guy is, I mean, he, he does deserve to go down. Uh, but the commentary proceeded to go describing David's you know, kindness towards his son as a, as a weakness, as like a father's blindness from an emotional standpoint. And, and that's the place where I think you, you got to zoom out and go, what, what actually is happening in this passage from the, the vantage point of the whole storyline that ultimately you do have this dialogue taking place from the beginning of the fall to the end of the story, which is what ultimately is going to reign supreme justice or mercy and on the cross, you definitely have the, the connection of these two, but mercy is going to win the day. And so going back to your point about Absalom is definitely a character, a type who points us to Jesus as one who absorbs evil in his death as he's suspended in midair. But Absalom is also a type of, of us and the, the justice that we deserve to get um, is going to be redirected mm-hmm. onto somebody else. But David himself ultimately becomes another type of Christ in the story who has a mercy that's being extended to the one he loves and who um, Jesus is going to fulfill as a greater version of. Because in many ways, David does look like one who's unable to protect his son in the story. He, he elicits a command, but even those who go out before him are una- are, aren't going to listen to them. They're not going to, they're going to challenge David's judgment and they're going to say, you know what? Justice demands that this guy die and we're going to take matters into our own hands and end his life. And so David in in one sense actually looks a lot like uh, that King in the story of, of Daniel where he wants to save Daniel's life and the lion's done, but he's twiddling his thumbs at home because the law is the law and justice must be, must be enacted for the laws that have, have come to be. And David looks a lot like that in, in this story. And so when you say David is a type of Christ, we have to say that Christ is a true and better version of what David is showing us in the story, in that Christ does protect the one he loves. And he does so by coming and, and dying the death that we deserve to die. That ultimately he does this mercy that he extends to us, triumphs over judgment in the language of James 2 in a way that is good news, like you said. I, I think the last thread to see as well in this passage is the ways that uh, the wilderness wanderings of David are brought to an end. So again, last time he was in the wilderness is because Saul was pursuing him. And so he's not living in the kingdom, though he is, he should be, and though he is the righteous king. 
Um, he's, he's fleeing in the wilderness and he's having to eat and, um, you know, from the, the, the land and it's just not good. And then Saul dies and David is brought back into the kingdom. So it's a death that precedes, uh, entrance into the kingdom. It's a death that ends the wilderness wanderings. And so too, in this story, you have the exact same thing where Absalom's death ends the wilderness wanderings and David and his men are allowed back into the kingdom. And there's going to be a, a small restoration of Israel that is going to precede the greater restoration that is to come. Uh, the last thing, and, and, and I know I said the last thing was the last thing, but the last, last thing here <laughs> is that right before this, uh, at the end of second Samuel 17, you actually have David, uh, eating in the wilderness. He's being served kind of in a very Psalm 23-like manner of in the presence of his enemies. There are people who literally come and serve him and his men a meal, which again, is just like, this, these passages are always dripping with so much of a, a gospel-centered understanding, a grace-centered, a, a cross-centered way of reading these things that are meant to draw our eyes to Jesus and what he wants to communicate to us. In other words, these stories are not locked in time about a certain people group. They have something to say to every person in every people group at every given time mm-hmm. because they're ultimately about the ultimate man, Jesus Christ, and his love for his people. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that, let's turn the page and look at Psalm 24. I'm just going to read it, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll go from there. So it says this, of David, a psalm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he? The king of glory. The Lord Almighty, he is the King of Glory. Where do you take this one, Chris? Another Psalm of David. Uh, Psalm 24 is a great psalm. I know, Davis, you and I have talked a lot about this. Uh, you've preached this too, which is, uh, must, yeah, be, one must of, have been a fun, one of your first sermons. One of the first psalms I ever got to preach psalms, was, okay. was uh, yeah, yeah, this one. I just love it. It's, I, it's I do thick. too. It's concise, but yeah, but but weighty in a good way. Yeah. And there's a lot going on. So I think Psalm 24, kind of like other psalms, even ones I think we've discussed in this podcast, have movement to them. They're, they're prophetic songs. Uh, they're ultimately the songs of Jesus. And we'll uh, connect some dots here in a, in a moment on that level. But you see in the first couple of verses, uh, movement or discussion about creation. Hmm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's a very Genesis 1 and 2e. Then you move in verses 3 to 4 to, uh, I think, more uh, language around the fall and sin and and even the law because things are kind of put on us. There's this question of uh, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? It's a it's a question that gets thrust on the shoulders of, of the listener and the hearer. Uh, and in one sense, it's thrown out there for all humanity, I think. You know, and David may be feeling this too. But the answer is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Um, then there's this promise of blessing in verse 5 for those who have those type of characteristics and th- those who have a, a type of resume that are able to go up and to ascend um, and uh, who are able to seek the face of God kind of on that level. But on the last the last section, it moves us away from that to 
this other figure. Uh, so it, it's interesting that it does not end with this kind of like, if you are like this, uh, this question of if you live this way, if you have these, this cleanness about you, then you can go up as, as if that's kind of the final chorus. But there's one more, there's one more verse and it moves us to a Jesus section or a gospel section where it, it, the focus is off of us and put on to this king of glory, again, in the form of a question. So who is this king of glory? Uh, and the answer is it's the Lord, the strong and mighty, um, very important to understand that when the Lord is referenced in the New Testament in the Psalms, it's always Jesus. Jesus is always the Lord. Uh, it's, it's this uh, very instinctual apostolic thing interpretationally that the, that the early Christians, the apostles saw. And so like in Hebrews, Hebrews is a great example of this, but it's all over. So the Lord is Jesus. Uh, the, the King of glory is Jesus Christ who would come and who would have that cleanness about him, who would die on a cross and who would ascend and go up for us uh, through, through the gates. And so so I'll just like, I, I'm going to start with that kind of big picture. And then I think just um, say, you know, one of the so what's to that is that this kind of becomes almost a way to to read the Old Testament. And it is instructive hermeneutically, interpretationally for us in that we don't stop with the stories uh, after verse six. You know, we, we keep going to the ultimate answer to all of our life's questions and all of the problems of our uncleanness in our heart, our failures at ascending to God in any way, in any, any sense of that word, the answer is not us. The Bible moves us away from the law away from do this and then you will live, away from be clean and then you will ascend. It moves us away from that to Jesus, who, who will come to purify us, but then be the ascender in our place as well. So I think that's just a really helpful, even just right here in the Old Testament, just a short 10 verse psalm becomes this this teacher, this instructor almost, you know, but the instruction isn't about us. It's about one who would fight our battles and who would ascend and be the, in this case, the answer uh, to all of our questions, existentially, theologically, uh, interpretationally, and, and otherwise. Yeah. And I, that movement from law to gospel is a period, right? Like you're it saying, is. it is a, it's not a law to gospel to law again. It's a movement from a question of who, who can do this to another question that is answered. The Lord can do this. He is the King of glory, period, full stop. This is where the psalm ends. There isn't a, now you go and cleanse yourself in light of this news. It's just a, are you beholding the one yeah. who is now making you clean, exactly. making you pure? Yeah. And so I, I love that. I, I also uh, appreciate, I think it's something I've heard you say over the years, Chris, of just Jesus is the answer to the questions that the Old Testament asks. Um, what a simple way to even read this text. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, Jesus. He is the King of glory, like you were saying. And I think in addition to that Sunday school approach, um, one of the ways that you can start to see how uh, Jesus is the Lord of glory is by simply asking that question. How? <laughs> How is the cross coming underneath a text like this and making it good news? I think this is when we're going to start to feel some of that. You, you mentioned Luke 24 earlier. Uh, you're going to start to feel some of that heart burning within you, some of that worship that's just going to, to meet you as you read the scriptures themselves. And and with this one, you just ask, how how is Jesus then the King of glory? Um, well, the, the verse describes these gates that are going to be lifting up, these ancient doors that are going to be opening so that the King of glory, so that Jesus might come in. Now, it does ring of this kind of, if you imagine ancient kingdoms going to battle, kind of Lord of the Rings-esque, and then those who are still in the kingdom are waiting to hear. And 
uh, even the word gospel kind of comes from this Roman idea of somebody returning with news that the one who went before us has been victorious. That's good news that we won the battle, right? And so this Psalm has that tone of, oh my goodness, this, this victor of a, of a, of a military battle is, has come back and now lift the gates and, and, and welcome them in. Um, so that's definitely upon first reading, we take that in as Jesus is the one who's coming back as the, as victorious in battle. But it also, it, it, I think it kind of turns itself in the light, in, in light of the gospel itself to say, this is having something to say directly to us, specifically with regards to these ancient gates, these, these doors that have existed for maybe since the beginning of time. Um, that's not an accident that those are there. And uh, it really, in, in, in zooming out, you see that the, the gates themselves represent the ways that we are on the outside looking in of what we were always designed for. You can think all the way back to the Garden of Eden of the flaming sword that stood as this ancient gate that says you cannot come back to that perfect relationship with God or to this uh, communion that you long for. Instead, we've always stood on the outside of this door looking in, longing for something that we don't have. And here in this psalm, you have the question, who can lift this? And it's amazing to hear that, um, or amazing to see, Jesus is ultimately even just saying, lift up you gates, lift up you ancient doors. Jesus's death is going to be the key that unlocks the, the, the lock itself that hangs on these gates so that we might have now access to God again. Uh, this this speaks loudly into the situations of life where we do feel left on the outside. That we do feel. Um, think back to when you were a kid and you you must you saw the sign. You must be this tall to ride. So much of our lives have been marked by that very experience. It doesn't date all the way back to that, but we even in our adult lives have a we're, we're constantly coming up in, into contact with. You must be this tall to ride the things of life. Um, usually having to do with choices we've made. I, I'm, I'm more and more convinced that so much of our lives look like, uh, well, here we are in March with the NCAA tournament. Uh, so much of our lives look like, okay, I'm going to make these decisions and there's so much hope as I make them, but there's a ridiculous amount of odds against us. And then time always shows us that we were just wrong, <laughs> that, we, that we are not this tall, that we are not able to ride. Mm. And life is just constantly <laughs> bringing us new doses of disappointment and yeah. grief and regret. I was like to say with NCAA that God is so wise that he knows exactly how bad my picks are going to be <laughs> every year, <laughs> down to the exact detail. He knows exactly and just how thoroughly off I'm going to be. That's in, in the infinite wisdom of God, he He has foreordained it. It's <laughs> yes, a good thing. Yeah, Sports Center even took the uh, the clip from Dumb and Dumber where he says, so you're saying there's a chance uh, on this one. And they said, your your odds of having a perfect bracket this year are, are you ready? One in 9.2 quintillion. I That was a new number for me. I don't I even know if I knew that was I a, haven't heard a quintillion word. <laughs> before. But those are your odds of perfection. In other words, you stand on the outside of a gate of perfection that you're not allowed in. One in quintillion chance of getting in there. So you're saying there's a chance. No, I'm saying there's not there's a no. chance. That's the whole point. And you and I have stood on the outside of this and it's Jesus coming in saying, lift up these gates. Perfection has been attained, not by work of your own, but by my perfect life and death so that these gates might open and you might now stand on the inside of the store. You are mm. tall enough to ride because you're with me. Mm. Uh, your odds of perfection have been achieved. So take a deep breath and rest. So good. Yeah, just circle back really quick too. I think that's, uh, and you were saying this, Davis, but... Um, this, when we say these are prophetic songs, we really mean that. It's prophecy. It's, it's looking ahead. And the hope, this last section here in the psalm, sounds like the prophets. Like the hope of the prophets is not that someone's going to come and 
and and cleanse your you know or or wipe off your clean your slate basically and give you a second chance and then it's back to you having to have clean hands right. to ascend like that's not what it says it, it moves on from the old to something that will actually work and be more defined by God's sacrifice his offering which is his son uh, not ours not the money we spend uh, not the religious effort that we produce uh, not the soap that we use in different ways in our life to to look better on the outside and, and all of that not not commandment keeping not our obedience to the law, but it moves on from that to, to, to the King of glory, just like this Psalm does. The final word is just Jesus. Uh, it's not Jesus plus, it's not Jesus and, it's not Jesus, uh, you know, linking arms with us as if we cooperate with him uh, in, in our justification or our sanctification, salvation or our ongoing daily Christian life, but it's only him. He is the final word. And that's where it becomes good news to, to those odds you put out there that that are that that is the odds when it comes to are we going to be able to clean our hands or not? Um, and the the good news is we don't have those anymore. Like there's 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 no numbers. It's just Jesus. Yeah, and this is what allows us to then look at all of the ways that we have made wrong picks and wrong choices in life. We're not we don't need to ignore it. We can actually go through it because on the other side we see the one who lifts up these gates, the one who says, "I forgive you," the one who says, "Come near." You're on the inside now. You don't need to be afraid. I've gone through this for you. Therefore, you can look at life as it is. You don't have to ignore it. You don't have to hide from the way life actually is. You are fragile. You are weak. You have sinned. It's okay. Come come near. Uh, let's turn the page down to the New Testament. First Thessalonians 5, 12 through 22. Again, it's, it's pretty short, so I'll just read it. It says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage and disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. How do we read uh, some of these New Testament instructions? This is actually kind of a precursor to where we're going next, but let's just talk about it specifically within this passage first. Great. Yeah. So um, I think it's helpful to look at a lot, a lot of these sections of these letters, which do kind of sound rapid fiery, you know, like Paul's just kind of like getting ready to sign off and he knows that and he wants to give some wisdom. These are churches. These aren't just individuals. And we got to remember that, that these are people who are sharing their lives together. They're very different. Some of them are enemies or former enemies who are starting to learn how to love each other because they have something bigger in common yeah. than what formerly divided them. But it's messy. It's not clean. And anyone who's been a part of a church knows that, like that it's not easy to do that. So a lot of the, en the endings of Paul's letters are these quick kind of sign off uh, exhortations for how to live in a way that makes much of God and puts others first and, and, uh, and works for that unity that we already have by, by the spirit of God. And so um, a phrase I use then uh, for, for these sections of scripture, kind of under the umbrella of Jesus is the point of all of scripture, e even the New Testament imperatives. This is not, we, when we say that, we don't just mean the obvious prophecies of the Old Testament, but a big part of, part of this podcast and, and the Red Tree Prophecy 
project is to show that Jesus is in every verse, uh, whether it, it could be very implicit or very, uh, very foggy, but he's there. And so that's also true here. And so when we approach this scripture then under that umbrella and with this idea of like gospel driven or gospel embodying good works, or maybe more particularly cross embodying uh, good works, we see that a lot of these things are things that Jesus already did for us. So when it comes to uh, Paul saying, help the weak. Well, we've been helped. We are the weak ones. We are not strong, spiritually speaking, before God, but he is. And he, and he was strong for us on the cross. Uh, becoming weak temporarily, uh, he gave us his strength, right? And so that's part of the gospel. Also love the mention of make sure nobody pays pays back wrong for wrong. That's, that's just a a great thing for any kind of group of friends or church community, I think. to We, we would, I think, we'd all say that would be great if that could be lived out perfectly. And it's not because <laughs> we always want to pay back people, but that shows where we're at. But it also shows God's heart he, that he isn't like that. He's not like that. He does not pay back our wrong uh, for wrong. You know, he, he doesn't get us back. He's not a God of vengeance through Jesus, but a God of mercy. And so I think that when we do that towards each other, we're putting on display what God is like when we let things go, when we forgive, when we're not paying back, because we're always shown wrong all the time, you know, every day, multiple times. And so a, a Christian, a distinctly Christian way to live is to work at being an absorber of those things, not just because it's a rule and that we're going to be judged on how well we do that. Uh, it's not a law in that regard, but, it, but because it, it's gospel reflecting, gospel embodying. It puts into, into physical airspace uh, what we say with our words and what Paul always starts his letters with, which is that Jesus is like this. He's like these things at the end of the letter uh, on much greater ways than you will ever, but with his spirit within you, that there's a way to tap into that reality and, and want to make much of him uh, in how we live our lives around other Christians and non-Christians as well. Which I think makes us read these slower because our first intuition is likely wrong when coming across something like this. Because again, we come to the end of a letter and we're, I, I know I speak on, I won't speak for the masses, I'll speak for myself. I come to the end of a letter like this and I'm quick to just go, uh, well, Paul's now telling us to keep our lives in order uh, with all these kind of one-handed, one-off comments about the way we should live. Like just in light of this stuff I've been saying, now do all these things and keep, keep things in order. Um, and, and that's just not what's happening. Instead, like you said, there are all these signposts that are pointing to something way beyond us. And usually the, the imperatives themselves have some measure of gospel leaning that's meant to draw Jesus out. Um, and I, I especially think that's true in, in one of the more memorized verses of this passage, which is in, uh, well, I guess it's verses 16, 17, and 18. Um, they're very short verses. 16 is rejoice always. 17, pray continually. 18, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, whenever you get into God's will talk, this is where we're most likely to try and grab the steering wheel, control our lives so we can uncover the puzzle of God's will mm -hmm. for us. And it's beautiful that Paul is not hiding God's will from us. It's this very wide net that has to do with three things, rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. And uh, I'll just want to zero in on one of them. This, this concept of rejoicing can, even in the midst of what we were just describing with how much life just beats you up. It's this constant making wrong choices that leads to things of, if we're honest, regret and suffering and sadness and harmed relationships. And so in the midst of this, you have this seeming command to rejoice. And it reminded me of this, this poem that W.H. Auden wrote about marriage. It's called In Sickness and in Health. I'll just read a, a very short part of it. It says this, Beloved, we are always in the wrong, 
handling so clumsily our stupid lives, suffering too little or too long, too careful, even in our selfish loves. The decorative manias we obey die in grimaces round us every day. Yet through their tohu bohu comes a voice which utters an absurd command, rejoice. This is an incredible picture of what I think is even happening in this command from, from Paul to rejoice. And that is through the tohu bohu. That, that's probably not a phrase that we're very familiar with. Uh, it's actually just the Hebrew recapitulation of formless and void there in the beginning in Genesis 1. Through the tohu vavohu, the formlessness and void, God said, let there be light. This is an amazing way to actually hear the command of rejoice. Through the formlessness and void and suffering and stupidity of our lives, the constant making a mess of things, God speaks a word of hope. Let there be light. Let there be joy. Let there be gladness. Let your bellies be filled with laughter as I bring the greatest thing to you, namely the person of Jesus Christ, who is light itself, we're told in the New Testament. So whenever we hear uh, this God's will for us, it is a through the formlessness and and voidness of our lives, God is speaking goodness. God is speaking light. God is ultimately speaking his son over you. So rejoice, pray continually, give thanks often because God is at work in your life. Mm. This isn't just got Paul telling you, hey, order your life. It's through the formlessness and, and just sadness that life brings us. Let the gospel be heard. Let it be cherished. Let it be uh, causing joy in your life because God is at work. So with this, let's turn the page now to the last section of but what about? And I, I find, and Chris, maybe this is true for you, the more you turn up the dial of grace, the more you turn up the dial of, of the gospel. Um, I've actually even moved less uh, towards uh, using gospel-centered language because uh, I, I just find in the last decade or so that term has become meaningless. It's become a word like unprecedented where it's just, everyone uses it, but its meaning becomes wider and wider and wider until it means nothing. Now I still use it, but I, I'm beginning to prefer cross-centered theology just because you're, you're not able to make that a job description. It's news and it's only news and it changes everything. And so the more you zoom in on that, the more you talk about it, the more pushback you get. And, uh, and that's okay. But one of the, the questions, at least, maybe not even pushback, is, well, then how do you talk about the ways the New Testament, in particular, brings about instruction or conversations about obedience, how we are to order our lives, or the famous way that Francis Schaeffer said, how then shall we live? It's a great question. I, I want to answer it in at least a, a couple of ways. So first is to not equate the law with New Testament instruction or conversations about obedience. In other words, it's not an equal sign. As we talk about the Old Testament law and when the New Testament is talking about instructions like forgiving one another, these are are never painted as a one-to-one in the New Testament or the Old Testament. They're never given us a, this is the same as what we were talking about when Moses was giving us the Ten Commandments. Uh, Because the scriptures never do that, we should never either. And this is ultimately good news because it's going to shape the way that we ultimately feel and think about holiness. It's the way that we're going to learn about the topic of holiness and how it actually works in our lives. I think in the past, we've talked about how the law itself um, was was a shadow of what was to come, and it's meant to be eclipsed by something far greater. So even the ways that we're thinking about holiness are going to get replaced with something bigger, namely Jesus himself, who's in you and is active in your life. And the form of holiness that he brings is a greater than symbol than anything the law could have. 
I mean, that's the simplest example. And we, maybe we've talked about this in an, a previous episode is the law says don't murder. And it's like, that's a good rule of thumb not to murder people. The gospel and having Jesus inside of you is going to bring about not only a a not murdering somebody, but a protective nature. And even more than that, a giving of your whole self to protect someone else in love a laying down your life. It's, it almost takes that uh, don't murder somebody and says, hold my beer and watch this and, and offer such a greater picture of this. So first principle is just mm. the law and the New Testament yeah. instruction. They are not a one-to-one. And in between those two things, you have Jesus saying, if you think about someone with a hateful spirit, you've murdered them. So in between that, the the initial law and that resolution, that 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 gospel shaping of the idea you just talked about is this dialing up of the problem it's i mean everyone murders every day uh and so that then that that need for that different way becomes all the more apparent which uh, it's going to have some implications too and one of which is um i think just immediately helpful which is your job then becomes less about a culture war and more about following jesus where he's going and friends, he's, he's not leading you into a culture war. That's just not his MO. He's not fighting the way the world fights. How does the world fight? Through a system of laws, through a system of do's and don'ts. And it's trying to co-opt somebody else to believe their system of do's and don'ts. And when we do that, we always lose because all we're doing is trying to win. <laughs> the gospel flips that on its head and says, no, you've already lost. And the only way to lasting victory is through the perpetual losing, the letting go, the following after me as I make all things new. And that's always uh, difficult. It always looks like surrender. But in the long run, it actually protects us from things like getting into stupid culture wars where we're trying to convince people of things. And then Jesus is ultimately sidelined. And again, we fight, we're fighting with the same weapons of the world. That's just not how Jesus does things. Right. He's not in the business of even fighting that way. I just watched a HBO show called Mayor of Easttown with my wife. Have you heard of this show? Uh, it's a HBO series about it's crime drama, basically. Um, I won't spoil it, but there's a point in there where a couple of the main characters are talking uh, who both had uh, a history of doing something great, but then their lives kind of sputtered. After that, uh, and one of them looks to the other and says, greatness is overrated because when you do something great, everyone expects you to do it all the time and you just disappoint them and they, they forget that you're just as screwed up as they are. And I thought this is really, really helpful way. I think the Bible really picks up on that, you know, and says when the disciples are asking, who's going to be the greatest in in your kingdom, Jesus? And and Jesus kind of pumps the brakes on that and says, actually, to be great is to not be great and and to not strive for that kind of worldly greatness, but to be okay being last because you're okay down there. I'm coming your way entirely. And that's the way of grace. That's the way of love. And so you see, you see it even, even in places like that as well, where, um, you know, where, where Jesus speaks into that and, and tries to really help shape the heart, you know, around, um, around the idea of, of greatness. So, yeah, yeah that brings us to the second point, which is, uh, explicit and implicit instructions or commands of obedience in the new Testament, um, are always connected to the gospel. So whenever something is described as like, you should do this thing, it's always connected explicitly to the gospel. And if it's not, you then have permission to insert the gospel. You were saying this a little bit with First Thessalonians 5. The example that comes to my mind is, is Ephesians 4, 32, where it just says, forgive one another. Why? Just as God in Christ forgave you. It doesn't ask the question why, but in, it's explicitly saying to you, this is why you're doing this, because God in Christ forgave you of your sins. So how could you not forgive somebody of something so petty in light of the eternal sin that you had against God? He forgave you of that. 
And so anytime that you see a New Testament instruction, it, it often is connected with the explicit, hey, Jesus did this for you. And if it's not, you do have permission to insert the gospel yep. there and, and actually even preach the gospel to somebody, especially if they're in your small group or in your congregation, you're able to say, this is why this is here. This is about Jesus doing this to you. Which is uh, a greater point, I think, that we're trying to give away even in this podcast is that that biblical what, the, the thing that we're talking about, always gets eclipsed by the greater theological why or how. And that has everything to do with Jesus and his taking on himself our sins and dying and rising again. That why, how of the gospel is a greater than, mm. than the what itself. Love it. It makes me think of Hebrews 10, 10 as well, which says that we've been made holy once and for all by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus. And so sometimes the idea of holiness and sanctification gets wrapped up with Christian ethics and imperatives, and rightly so. On one level, they they should be in the same conversation. Uh, But to remember that we're already made holy is by the work of someone else, and that we're made spotless by that blood and water that poured from Jesus's side, purified by his work and his nail-pierced hands, not our calloused ones. Uh, That actually ends up producing, by his continued work within us, uh, producing uh, a way of holiness that the law never could, you know? And like, I, so again, I'd say it like as simple as this, like the only way to be holy is to recognize you already are by, by the works of someone else's hands. Like you can't, you can't hijack, you can't go around that. You can't circumvent that. The Bible goes right through that, you know, uh, unashamedly, like a, like a steamroller, you know, like you, you have to see that Jesus is the Holy one who lives within you. You have to see that once and for all you past tense have been made pure and spotless. That's the only hope we have for change. Which is, it's exciting at the end of the day. Ethics is never exciting, in my opinion. Like if you sit in an ethics class, it's usually pretty boring. Uh, But what Jesus is doing, even with the topic of ethics, is making it surprisingly good news. Because he comes with phrases like, like what you just described, which is essentially, you are becoming who you already are in Christ. This is a surprising upside down approach to ethics, but it actually makes good people. And the the way that that happens is counterintuitive. It happens by you not focusing so much on trying to create oaks of righteousness out of people, which again, that's that's the world's project. Everybody's trying to make their own form of righteousness of people by, here, take what I believe about stuff and go and enact it in the world. Where Jesus comes to you and in love lays down his life for you and makes you what you are not, speaks over you what you aren't, and in that process is changing us. And our job is to behold, believe, see him, retell these stories, even just go open the Bible and go, where is he? Let's talk about him. And, and then we can get in this conversation of downstream that we're, we're looking at how people actually change, which brings us to the last point. And I, I think ultimately people are after, how do I actually do this? How do I talk about instruction? How do I talk about obedience, especially when it comes up in the Bible? Um, and that is, uh, and this is, this is personally how I engage it. I'm, I'm never going to use even the word obedience if it's not attached to belief, because that's again, how I'm seeing these things unfold in the story that when, when something is, when we're told to even do something, it's attached to a greater reality that has not to do with us and what we're trying to enact in the world and has instead everything to do with Jesus and his project of making all things new. And so I'm going to talk about obedience. I'm going to talk about ultimately connecting it to belief and following him, which is going to create people who are after God's own heart. Um, uh, Thomas Cranmer has this awesome line where he says that what the heart wants, the will chooses and the mind justifies. 
In other words, if you're just trying to change people's wills or their what they think about stuff, you're always going to be on the you're never going to be successful in that because everyone's heart is just chasing what they want. And so you have to be able to speak to people's hearts and Jesus is in that business. You and I aren't aren't good at that. It takes Jesus unlocking and melting hearts and replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And that happens ultimately through his word of hope, through his word of, of good news. And so that's why we're so interested in that. We want to let, let the things they're at in 11 from a volume standpoint and the whole story be at an 11. And by my best reading of these things, New Testament obedience and instruction is at about a two. And so, yeah, I'm going to talk about it, but I'm going to keep it at about a two. And then everything else is going to be at that 11, specifically with regards to Jesus and how he changes us and why this is happening ultimately mm. in the big story. Right. Yeah. If you wanted to to dye the Mississippi River green for St. Patrick's Day, I know that Chicago does that, right, with with their river, you, you'd pour the dye upstream. You'd pour it in the headwaters, you know, uh, and then you pour a little bit maybe in the in the main section, you know, uh, uh, to kind of expedite the the whole thing. Right. But but you pour it upstream. Otherwise, you're going to lose it right away. It's the same thing for, eth- for these the first. This, this conversation around ethics and New Testament instruction, obedience, like where, where does it come from? You know, and again, to go back to that same verse I mentioned before, Hebrews 10, 10, it says, by the will of Christ and his obedience to his father, that's how we're ultimately made sanctified. So all discussion about obedience uh, needs to flow out of that, that someone has obeyed for us. Someone has ascended the hill of the Lord to go back to Psalm 24 for us. Someone has died for us in uh, the one in fulfilling all of scripture and fulfilling all of the questions and fulfilling all of the problems and the, the gaps. And, and the things we don't feel like we can totally do that well, he's, that, he's the answer to that question always. It's, it, it's not, nor can it ever be us. It's the absurd command. Rejoice, right? Receive it, yeah. what he has to say. Let there be light. That's a good note to end on. We'll catch you next time on the Red Tree Pod. Thanks for joining us. You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. Or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on The Red Tree Pod.